Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we're joined by Melissa Ma. Melissa is a co-founder and managing partner of Asia Alternatives, a fund of funds platform focused exclusively on Asian private equity opportunities. Asia Alternatives also happens to be the largest and longest lived women-founded private equity firm and now in its 15th year. Melissa, thanks so much for joining the conversation today. Thank you, Jen, for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. Melissa, there is so much to unpack in the foundation story of Asia Alternatives, but to focus on you, as I like to do in the podcast, you came to private equity through what you could call a conventional path, starting with the analyst core at Goldman, working at McKinsey in the financial institutions and private equity practices, and then spending some time at Hellman and Freeman in San Francisco. So you straddle both worlds as a fund of funds. You're an investment manager, but also an allocator. Did you imagine as you were going through this path, having spent some time at a GP in your past life, that you'd wind up as an LP yourself? On reflection, no, I did not. That was never really part of what I thought I would do, and especially not doing an entrepreneur role in a firm that I started with two other women. I don't consider myself an entrepreneur. I consider myself a person who invests in entrepreneurs. And it really was the experience I had at Hellman and Freeman, and we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, Warren Hellman and others being willing to take a chance on us and a kooky idea that I ended up here as an LP and as an entrepreneur. You also had a really personal role in the founding of ILPA, and it's always fascinating to get the scoop on an origin story. But as you know, I had no idea about your involvement in the early days. So what have you observed in that span of time? You've had a a really unique front row seat to the industry. and, And how have you seen LPs evolve during that span? And that's why it's so special to me to be asked to do this podcast is I do feel like I have a lot of history with ILPA. When I was at McKinsey, I was a consultant to CalPERS. And at the time, Rick Hayes was a leader in that, the Alternative Investment Program, and had also just started getting involved with ILPA on the board. He brought McKinsey in to do a pro bono study about how ILPA could institutionalize and maybe write a strategic plan. As since I was serving CalPERS and I was serving Rick and today, who continues to be a very big part of my life and a mentor and a reason that we're here at Asia Alternatives, wanted to work on that project. And so, you know, back then, it really was the idea about could institutional investors come together, not only for education, but also in order to advance the overall cause as an asset allocator. And it's interesting that when you talk about the change in the industry, when we were, when I was at McKinsey, we were doing that strategic plan. And then once we finished the strategic plan and we had the first meeting, it was, I remember it was at the World Bank. It was hosted by Garrett McDonald. We could all sit around one conference table. One of the biggest concerns was, can we really come together, share information, work towards the common goal? And there were some people who, even if they, you know, legally there wasn't an issue, were very concerned about backlash, that they would be blacklisted by GPs. 
And wow, how have far have we come today that we have this incredibly strong network, people talk to each other, they collaborate with each other, but even so far as looking at what ELPA has done, set standards for so many things in our industry on terms, on benchmarking, on practices. And do when I think back to, you know, the reason that people didn't even want to come to the conference table 20 years ago, I really, you know, it, we've come together in the most important way possible. And it's fascinating to me that even the sharing of the most basic information <laughs> was viewed in that light, given how critical it is to understand, yeah. is my perspective on a particular issue or a particular practice unique? Am I an outlier? Do other people feel the same way? To get to what is an appropriate and an effective response. And I'm so pleased having had a front row seat myself the last few years to see how far we've come and how much progress has occurred. In terms of progress, we've come a long way in a relatively short period of time, or maybe not. We'll see what you think um, when it comes to being welcoming of professionals from all backgrounds. And early on in the family of Asia Alternatives in those early years, you earned some labels. And the one that sticks out to me is Charlie's Angels. Um, we were just <laughs> talking about being on the cover of ABCJ back in the day with that label and you know, a photo of you and your, your two co-founders. And we're certainly seeing more interest among ILPA members in allocating to so-called diverse managers. But you, Asia Alts, have not taken money from those specific pools. And I'm curious as to why, you know, particularly given you were a startup, you were out there trying to establish those first LP relationships. And thinking to today, if you were doing it all over again in 2020, do you think you'd instead opt to go down that path, identifying as a diverse manager to LPs? If we had to do it all over again, I'm sad to say because we're obviously incredibly supportive of that, I would definitely have to think twice. And the reason for that is twofold. One is it depends on the structure of the program. I think some of the more progressive programs are ones that use this as a broader sourcing mechanism to cast the net wider, but they might put people in a certain program or a certain bucket on the first fund, but then quickly graduate them to the mainstream program with the perception and the need that you have to stand on your own credibility, which is really your track record, versus others where the programs are really specifically targeted at specific types of groups, and then you kind of stay in that bucket. I ultimately believe that long-term that these programs are very beneficial to helping make sure that people use a different lens, they cast a net wider, that they are giving equal opportunity to managers to come in. But after, you know, we can debate what it is after two funds or some form of what you track record, our industry is our industry. Our job is to produce returns for as a fiduciary duty for the beneficiaries. And I still believe that that is the primary responsibility of the asset allocators here. How was being a women-owned, women-founded firm perceived by the LPs that you were talking to at the time? Just to sort of gauge, you know, have we made as much progress as we think we have? Yes, it's really hard to say because, of course, when you're out there fundraising, nobody really tells you the truth, right? They don't really tell you how you're perceived or what the internal discussion is about. But again, the benefit of being a decade and a half in is that, and I think times have changed greatly, is that I have heard anecdotally from some LPs that are very, very close to us and are still with us what it was like to have discussions about Asia Alternatives in those early days. And in those range of stories, Jen, what I would say is, being a female-founded firm was at best neutral in those days from the stories I've heard to a little bit of being a liability. 
uh, haven't come forward with anybody who kind of said it was a benefit. I mean, I have heard of stories where people said that it was actually, you know, this fact that we were female owned was, and three female founders was actually in their investment risk section. And it was not necessarily because they thought that, you know, there was something that we wouldn't be able to perform, but a concern that the markets that we were investing in in Asia culturally were more patriarchic and that the vast majority, and it is, you know, unfortunately still true today, but then even more so, the GPs, particularly the oversubscribed GPs that we wanted to get into, were male-dominated. And how would we be able to fare and get access in that environment? And I'd like to think today that it's actually turned the other way around. We're very proud of the fact that we are female-owned and female-founded, even though we didn't, that may not be the reason that people picked us. One example of that is the PE Win had their annual meeting last week, and they do the PE Win Awards of the Year. Dana Johns and the state of Maryland were recognized for the second year in a row. And we've had a separate account with Maryland now for almost 10 years. And I can guarantee you when we were going through that process, none of this had to do with the fact that we were female-owned. It was that we were talking about building a strategic relationship to build out their Asia portfolio. Dana you know, and the state of Maryland have continued to, in my mind, put their fiduciary duty first, but also balance it with trying to give opportunities to more diverse populations and now being recognized for it is just such a change in the way that when I think about those first conversations started with those public pensions in 2015. I wanted to circle back to the comment you made about navigating in cultures where, you know, you do have male-dominated firms, I think even probably still today, that's more the norm than not. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and societally, you called out, tends to tilt more towards a patriarchal Color. So how did you, you and Rebecca and Lori navigate that? Navigating it really, in my mind, Jen, is on two fronts. It's on the fundraising front and it's on the investment front. We had no doubt going in that this was not going to be an issue at all on the investment front. It was more of the perception on the fundraising front that people had. And I'll tell you what I told LPs back then, some of which clearly got over it and they came into the fund and they're with us today. And I'm sure 15 years ago, it was the fact that we were LPs and not GPs. There are different cultures. Asia is not a monolith. So in certain areas like China and India, we have great trailblazing female GPs from very early on that are very successful today and continue to do so. Whether we're in LPs, females, or GPs, it wouldn't have mattered. Maybe some of the other cultures like Japan and Korea, where we have a lot of investments, might have been a little bit more difficult from a GP perspective. But from an LP perspective, we are investing in managers who are in, who are internationally focused. Their training, their education, the type of firm they want to build is a world-class, best-in-class institution. And that ultimately usually means that generally they've had some kind of international uh, education or work experience. In, in that sense, recognizing the large pool of capital that is controlled by female allocators is something that uh, most of them had experience with. And if not, and they didn't, and there was any kind of bias, then that certainly was not going to be a fit and very good filter. Right. And, and if you want to be positioned as a global player as you're building up that, you know, access into the institutional market, it matters. Pivoting a little bit to the current moment, We're having this conversation over Zoom. How many of us have had conversations over Zoom for many months? You've got an office in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing. 
and none of us are really traveling the way we did a few months ago. So how are you keeping it together as a geographically diverse team and, and still putting money to work, still keeping things moving forward? Jen, here is where I think that our story is quite different from almost anybody else. We have offices in Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong and San Francisco. People left to go to Chinese New Year holidays, and then they never left after they never came back in the office after that for a couple of weeks. So COVID is something that we've been living with for full 2020. And where we are today is it really feels like a tale of two cities. Our Beijing and Shanghai offices have been open since March 9th. They have not closed one day since then. They come into the office and early on taking a lot of extra precautions today. Beijing, in fact, at the beginning of August, the local government did away with the mask requirement. The day in China starts people come in to the office as normal. When we get on our Microsoft Teams, and that's how we, you know, we've been doing, we do our calls and our video calls even before this, people are sitting in the conference room and they're having face-to-face meeting with GPs. We even have our China team traveling. They're traveling domestically between Beijing and Shanghai, which is what we uh, call the, the China private equity commute. And, you know, that couldn't feel farther apart from where we are right now in San Francisco. Right. Uh, we shut our offices down in the middle of March. We shut it down a little bit earlier than the city asked for a quarantine, and San Francisco was the first city to go into quarantine. So, you know, we've been working 100% remotely, uh, working from home, you know, ever since March. Then contrast that to, say, the other half of our firm, which is on the investing side, it is about as normal, and if you could see my hands, you'd see I made air quotes, right, as normal can be in this environment. And thankfully, that's where we make our investments, which is where I think we haven't had to make as much change to our investment processes. And certainly the pace of our investments has not slowed down nearly as much as I think some of our counterparts would that are in the U.S. or Europe, where there's still a lot of working from home and quarantine happening. It's an amazingly stark contrast. But to stick with China for a second, there's been a lot of spilled ink over U.S.-China relations over the last many months, characterized as being at their lowest point now than they've been in two decades. And from a policy perspective, in the U.S. at least, that's taken on the form of executive orders and legislative initiatives. And I know one that you've been watching closely is the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. And you've pointed out that this really has the potential to impact our industry. And why is that? Everything that we do and look at, Jen, we put through two lenses. One lens is what we call political decoupling, and the other lens is what we call economic polarization. And economic decoupling, what we mean by that is that we think regardless of whether or not, uh, of who wins in November and and whether or not it's going to move beyond just the U.S. and China, we are going to see over the next near to medium term continued political decoupling from China. China's rise as a global economic superpower has been meteoric and unprecedented. And over the last 10 years, the rest of the OECD economies dependence, and you can even argue even developing countries, dependence on China has been growing very strong in a very fast pace. At the same time, China's dependence on the rest of the world has been decreasing. So we sit today at a, at a point in time where that gap has never been bigger, 
and at a point in time where from an economic basis, and we look at it by any dimension, percentage of GDP growth, a percentage of actual GDP, the United States and China are about as close together as you can look in prior histories when one rising economic power was threatening another power. And this is you know, called the Thucydides trap, which is the term coined by Professor Graham Allison at Harvard. He looked at 16 cases in the history of the world where a rising power was threatening an existing power, and in 12 out of those 16 times, it resulted in conflict. Now, here, we hardly believe this is going to be a military conflict, but it's going to take the form of a cyber and economic conflict, which is what we're starting to see the beginning of. And that, we think, political decoupling uh, countries are going to continue to do so, particularly in strategic areas like technology, security, and healthcare, just because of their need to be more strategically independent. However, we think that there is no way that the China and the United States can actually decouple, nor can other major economies also decouple. So we do not use that term here. We do not think we're going to see economic decoupling. Instead, what we think is we're going to be moving towards a more multipolar world, because it's not going to be the United States on one pole and China on the other pole, and it's like dodgeball, everybody's got to pick a side. No. All the other major countries, you know, EU, Japan, India, Korea, Canada, some of them are going to be closer to one pole or the other. But in this process, you are going to start to see that the political ramifications on the economy are going to become more and more. So this is where these two things are going to cross. So specifically on this Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, we certainly think that it is too early for allocators to be taking any moves or making any long-term ranging decisions regarding their exposure in China. Such a major decision regarding the second largest economy in the world is not something to be taken lightly, and it's not something that you can rebalance easily. Why is that? First is that the act itself has not passed. It's not law. It hasn't passed the House yet. The second is that even if it does pass, it does allow for the auditors of the Chinese U.S. listed companies three years in which to comply by being inspected by the PCAOB. And three years is a very long time. This issue, which is around having Chinese companies listed in the United States have their books and records open to U.S. authorities is not a new topic. In fact, there were some suits over this about five years ago that were settled. And there have been a number of constructive dialogues between the CSRC, which is the SEC equivalent in China, and our SEC to try to find technical ways to make this happen while still complying with each respective country's information securities laws. There have been schemes around, you know, is there a way to potentially do a dual audit or a co-audit? Unfortunately, those talks have, and that the progress at the technical level has stalled under the Trump administration. It is certainly our hope that those would continue because there inevitably is a solution space here that is beyond the politics of this. However, in the worst case scenario that this does not happen, we ultimately think that the U.S. capital markets will suffer because if you just look at the listed companies in the United States, there are about 240 Chinese companies listed. They represent about 1.7 trillion, 1.8 trillion in market cap. Chinese companies do account for over 50% of the international listings. So if you suddenly take those away, then you have a lot fewer international listings in New York. 
That being said, the U.S. today represents less than 10% of all Chinese companies that are listed, and it represents less than 10% of all capital raised in IPOs. So over the last five years, where the U.S. markets may used to be much more important to the Chinese companies, most of that business has actually shifted to Hong Kong already or shifted to Asia market, and we think this is only going to accelerate that. So in the end, we have not seen a slowdown in U.S. listings or in Hong Kong listings of Chinese companies since this act passed the Senate in May. In fact, uh, Hong Kong is leading the lead tables this year in IPOs and will probably likely uh, be the number one again for IPOs as last year due to the activity of the Chinese companies. But there are an increasing number of dual listings now that are happening between New York and Hong Kong. So investors in the exact same companies like Alibaba or JD or NetEase, which are three of the largest Chinese listed companies in New York, are going to have very easy options to convert their shares to Hong Kong. But as somebody who's an American, of course, doing business in China, I still believe that the most liquid market is the U.S., And the most international market is the U.S., and I would certainly hope that there is a solution space to be found here so that New York does not lose that reputation and that ability. I mean, you make make a great case for the fact that, um, at least on numbers alone, we need... Chinese companies more than they need the U.S. capital markets. So we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. And certainly, you know, what's the viability of, of the act and in light of the fact that we're in an election heading, heading into a lame duck session here in the U.S. So let's watch this space. But just to turn to a different topic entirely, you and I spent some time talking about the SEC's push over the last few years here in the U.S. to open up private markets for the non-institutional market. Let's get access to Mr. and Mrs. 401k, as Chairman Clayton likes to say. It's fair to say that private markets can be pretty costly. The fee load's legitimate. So what are we really talking about when we say the SEC wants to open up private equity to retail investors? And what's that likely to look like? It's something that we feel very passionate about, not only just from a business perspective, but also as the term that you and I have used, democratization of private equity. I think the next biggest wave of innovation is going to be how do we democratize private equity and how do we, and the first place to start for that is, of course, in the place where it makes most sense to have private equity, which is people's pension or retirement savings. And study after study has shown that those organizations that manage both DB and DC programs, there's several hundred basis points over a period of 10, 20 years of return differential. And where does it come from? It comes from the lack of all allocation alternatives. We all know the right thing to do is to be able to give access to the 401k market, right? That is the largest pension asset pool, $7 trillion. And why should these investors not have access to maximize their retirement benefits the same way that defined benefit, which is a shrinking plan, have the same assets? Now, I am in this regard the ultimate optimist whenever I've thought about innovation in our industry, when it is the right thing to do, it may take time and it may take pain, but ultimately the industry does find a way to get it done. So to your question, I think the opening up of private equity to retail investors will be very much along the lines of the watermark letter that the DOL issued, which is providing some guidance on this, is a huge step forward. And what they talked about is the first right step, which is that looking at this in terms of a balanced portfolio professionally managed. 
So I don't think that we're suddenly going to open up and mom and pop are going to have an ability to choose between GPA, GPB, and GPC. No, it is continuing to be able to select a balanced, professionally allocated portfolio, which has a prudent level, first of all, of private, and not just private equity. We include private debt, private real estate in there as well. And then within that, that is professionally managed in terms of picking the best in class as it relates to the time frame and the the glide path that is necessary. So I think that's what the first iteration is going to look like. It also then starts to, it's not the reason it should exist, but it also starts to uh, fix your problem, which is essentially the fee load, which is ultimately the in order to be able to get this done at a fee load level that is anywhere close to the, the industry level. I think we're going to be basically looking at, you know, everything that is not private is essentially going to be indexed, right? It's going to get that down to 10 basis points or less so that on a blended basis, these products can end up in that, you know, 1% range, particularly if you can prove out the additional alpha and the additional dollars being generated for beneficiaries over time. seems like that's still within acceptable market norms. Once there's proven that these products that have more privates are generating more return, I'm hoping that there will be a broader education done, which, you know, you get what you pay for, right? Which is if you want to take a little more risk and have the potential to have a higher return on your long-term retirement assets, then you're going to have to have to be willing to pay a little bit more fee. But we're clearly not there yet, and that's going to take a number of years to have a mind shift change. And I guess on the fee load, I wonder, scale's a big factor here, right? If you have enough professionally managed balanced portfolios giving retail investors access, are those managers going to have access to enough of the market? Are they going to be managing enough volume to really bring those fees down? Would, what is your prognostication, right? A little crystal ball gazing. Do institutional investors benefit from the influx, however large or small, of retail investors when it comes to their own fee load, you know, where managers are trying to get things to a place where that blended rate looks a little bit better? This is a big question, I think, that's being debated with our kind of core institutional, GP and institutional uh, LP community, which is a $7 trillion DC industry. Does that come in and completely disrupt the apple cart? I don't think that's the case. First of all, I think that uh, it's going to be a pretty slow and steady, and it's going to take longer than any of us would probably like to introduce these DC products with private assets in them. And we're even still waiting to really kind of see our first scalable, first mover wave. So I still think it's going to be a manageable number. Let's hope in my lifetime it actually becomes more common in your more common target date you know, options, let's say, for example then, you know, we are talking about, you know, billions of dollars, right, coming in to the industry each year, in which case, you know, my prognostication is the fact that we're going to start to see a bifurcation of the industry. You know, we have very smart people, very smart asset managers who will innovate and essentially find a way to have a lower cost, higher volume, larger scale product, whether it's a product or a separately managed account, however it's done, you know, in assets that maybe are targeting a low return, maybe they're targeting the low to mid-teens, which is more, you know, for many 
uh, retirement plans and target date is more than sufficient, right? If you think about just getting 10 or 11 or 12% compounded over and you are 30, 40 years old, I mean, that is a multiple times more dollars in your pocket to use for retirement when you're 65 versus the more specialized, you know, more capacity constrained strategies like venture, mid-market growth, maybe a lot of what we do in Asia will probably not be something that's going to be in the mainstay of these larger DC programs. So I do see a bifurcation and I do think that there is, as we start to see more and more companies choosing to stay private, you know, it will go from public to private, our opportunity set seems like it's only going in one direction. Right. There's so much of the economy that, you know, 401k participants today have zero access to. So so just to, to wrap it up, I, I want to turn it back to you. And I'd love to know about two people that, with us or not, in our industry or not, that you'd most like to have a drink with today. The answer to that are two people I'm very blessed to have in, I, I, one was and, and one today in my life already, and that is uh, Warren Hellman and Arthur Rock. They were two out of our three founding investors and a key reason why Asia Alternatives is here today. And Warren, of course, passed away five years ago. I miss him dearly as a mentor. Um, I'd love to be able to have a drink with him. He didn't drink, so we would probably have a tea or coffee or something. Particularly, I'd love to get his view on all the craziness that's happening in the world. And he always had a way to just kind of level set and balance things for me personally when I felt like there were so many other chaotic scenarios swirling around me. What I would love to do is actually have a drink with these guys 50 years ago. By the time uh, they became mentors, I see them more as elders and always very patient, uh, very kind with their time, very generous philanthropists. But if you listen to people who knew them in their heyday, Warren's nickname was Hurricane Hellman. And for Arthur, if you ever watched the movie, the Steve Jobs movie, and there was a one of the early board meetings for his early backers, there was a board member who slammed his fist down on the boardroom table, and that is a portrayal of Arthur. And so the Warren and Arthur that I experience today are very, very different from their predecessor relationships. And I would just love to know those. I would have loved to have been at a front row or fly on the wall to, to meet those earlier Arthur and Warrens. <laughs> I, I think that's an excellent uh, tilt to put on it. And what is the best advice you've ever received, whether from Warren and Arthur or otherwise? This is advice that was actually given to me very early on when I started at Goldman Sachs. I was quite young at the time, but it really came to bear, you know, 10 to 20 years later. And it is that you can have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. And whenever I've had to make tough choices in my professional uh, and personal or even within my professional personal careers and family life, I try to remind myself of that, that it is certainly a journey and not a sprint. And at the end of it, hopefully there will be time to accomplish everything that we want to personally and professionally. Well, that, that's certainly an encouraging note to end on. We won't have it all, but eventually we'll have some of it a piece at a time. Uh, Melissa, this has been a really insightful and, and enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jen. Thank you.